Good morning, church. Today's reading is Daniel 7, 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's, eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. These are the words of our Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. You guys happy to be here? No doubt about it. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Jace is unemployed as of today. That dude was gloating a little bit too much over me being dunked in the tank. Anybody's 
there. Did you watch me get dunked, anybody? Oh yeah, like you're celebrating that. That is so rude. That's so rude. I got baptized for the first time. Like 20 times. More like 30. I spent more time in that dunk tank than all the rest of these guys. I was the last one. They were just lined up for miles. That was a blast. What a great day it was yesterday. Thank you guys for being a part of it. A lot of fun. And then especially last weekend was a really great weekend. We had some baptisms last weekend. It was great. Praise God. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. Daniel's our current teaching series, Shining in a Dark World, God Always Wins. Daniel chapter 7. Let me bring you up to speed. Grab your sermon notes out. First six chapters taught us how we can shine in a dark world. Uh, it was all narrative, and now we get into the back half of, of Daniel, and it's uh, pretty crazy stuff. I mean, this is prophecy. This is why a lot of pastors stop right there. They stop after six chapters. Up, oh, we're not doing that. Um, they're chickens. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're going to deal with it. We're going to walk through it. You're going to see, you heard the reading, so we're going to walk through this stuff over the next six weeks. But the first six chapters really taught us how we can shine in a dark world because God is our Savior. He always gives us what we need when life is beyond our control. We finished up where Daniel was 80 years old. Now we're going to go back to when he was 60 under King Belshazzar. And he had a, a, a dream that we're going to unpack and look at. In fact, we're going to see four different dreams or visions, however you want to call them, over the next six chapters, three of which deal with the Antichrist. And um, so it'll be really fascinating in the coming weeks. But the second six chapters, 7 through 12, will teach us why we can shine in a dark world because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign over history, our life is never out of control as he works all things for our good and his glory. So we've got to deal with a question here as it relates to the word sovereignty. A lot of confusion, and you can have friends that are using that same word but a different di uh, dictionary. So you can use the same word and everybody using a different dictionary, so we need to make sure that we're using the right dictionary and understanding what sovereignty means when we say that God is sovereign. A lot of crazy ideas in our culture today when it comes to the sovereignty of God. So it's important to have a biblical understanding. So let me give you two options here. I'll make it easy for you. Two options. You can yell out to me which one you think would represent the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is, is that God is in control or God is controlling? Which one would it be? God is in control or God is controlling? So you guys would say, for the most part, everybody, he's in control, but he's not controlling. He's not a micromanager. Would you agree with that? And yet there are those out there, they wouldn't use that language, but they would say basically God is a micromanager. That's not what actually the Bible teaches us. So God is in control, but he is not controlling. He is not a micromanager. Here's a good working definition for sovereignty. It's on your notes there, Psalm 115.3. God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's sovereignty. What pleases him? Well, look at verse 16 of Psalm 115. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. 
So he's given a level of freedom and choice to his creation, what it's saying here. So God in his sovereignty has not determined what choices we will make, but that we should be free to make our own choices. So why is that? Because we were created as objects of his love for relationship with God, and you cannot have love and relationship apart from freedom and choice. You cannot have love and relationship apart from freedom and choice. Anybody here ever see the movie Stepford Wives? Stepford Wives? Crazy movie. Crazy movie and uh, a group of men replace their wives with robots who look pretty and serve their, their needs without complaint. I like that idea. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Other than the fact they're robots, that's what's wrong with that, just kind of robotically oh, going through the motions. And, and, so, and I know that some of you, after meeting me and then you met my wife, I know what went through your head initially is you said, that dude must have forced her to marry him. <laughs> Anybody? Show of hands. Okay, you guys are excommunicated right there. Okay, I, I didn't force her, but you're thinking, well, maybe he tricked her. Oh, some, some are in the front row here like, yeah, that's what we're thinking. I mean, think about that. That's, that's insane. I mean, that you would manipulate anybody to, to marry you? You want a robot? That's not a relationship. There's nothing that moved my heart more than when my wife said, I do. Because she was responding not out of manipulation or control or I was tricking her. No, this is... What you see is what you get, babe. <laughs> she goes, I know, that's what I'm concerned about. <laughs> and and she, she said, I do. Oh, man, it touched my heart. And I'm telling you, when you say, I do, to the creator of the universe, it touches his heart because you're responding to his love. He offers us his love. He you were created as an object of his love for relationship. Oh my goodness. And when you respond out of the freedom of choice, you go, oh God, I, I do, I do want you. I want you to be at the center of my life. Oh my goodness, there's nothing that moves his heart more. My sister had a, uh, growing up, my sister had a Chatty Cathy doll. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say Chatty Cathy doll? Kind of a freakish little doll. I don't think her eyes ever, uh, you know, her eyes were just open like this. And you could pull the string and she'd go, I love you. That's freakish. You blink, you don't ever blink. So as a little boy, I slept with one eye open. I didn't want to see Chatty Cathy in my room at night. Woo well, I mean, it, so, so you pull the string and she says, I love you. That is so meaningful. It's not. We're not robots. We can interact with the God of the galaxies. We're image bearers of God. We have this freedom to choose. And nothing touches his heart more than when we respond to his, his invitation of love and relationship. And we enter into that by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this question as we kind of work our way into this text. What word best characterizes, what word best, char oh, you know what, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Uh, 
Let me go back to this idea of being free moral agents and ability to choose. And so, but with freedom and choice, with freedom and choice come consequences. Would you agree with that? So there's a lot of people that would reject his offer of love and relationship, and that creates problems. It creates a lot of sin and suffering on this planet Earth. But with freedom and choice come consequences. But in God's sovereignty, let's go back to God's sovereignty, he can restrain, limit, and use our good and bad choices and consequences for our good and his glory. Okay, I needed to make sure we understood that. Because we're still talking about his sovereignty. Now let's go back to the text here. What word best characterizes your outlook of, of the future for your life or the future of our country? Let me give you two choices here. Stressful or restful? Stressful or restful? When it comes to your own personal future or the future of our country, stressful or restful? Daniel's prophecy makes the difference between those two attitudes. When you really understand prophecy, it makes a difference between those two attitudes. And your attitude should be, I pray, that as we study God's Word, it's less stressful and more restful. Now, in case you forgot, God always wins. That's the that's storyline. That's the storyline of the whole Bible. That's the storyline of Daniel's prophecy here. He always wins. Why? Because, and here's the outline of our study this morning. You can see that on your notes. This is how I've got it divided up, because God knows what the future holds. That's verses 1 through 8. By the way, you've heard us say this before. Maybe you've said it. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Well, the fact is, is that God knows what the future holds. That's verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at the future. And then he holds the future, and he holds the future. That's verses 9 through 14. Therefore, how should we live in light of that? That's verses 15 through 28. So God knows what the future holds, verses 1 through 8, it's on your notes, and he holds the future, verses 9 through 14, therefore how should we live in light of that? I hope less stressful and more restful, that's what I would hope for this morning. So let's pray, would you bow your heads with me? Let's ask God for him to guide us and direct us and so that our hearts would be open to receive what he wants to speak to us this morning. God, we're, we love you, we love your presence. There's nothing we enjoy more than spending time with you. We are so very thankful that we can engage you, encounter you, and enjoy you by grace through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see more clearly than ever that our rest is not to be found in figuring out our future or our country's future, but in trusting you, the one who knows what the future holds and who holds the future. Because you are our Savior, you always give to us what we need when life is beyond our control. And because you are our sovereign God, our life is never out of control as you work all things for our good and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen. So take a look at that first one. God knows what the future holds, verses one through eight. Now this is a vision of world history. Next point on your notes, this is pretty powerful stuff. Daniel accurately prophesied more than 2,500 years of world history with astonishing detail. Astonishing detail. It is so specific and accurate that the critics have tried to suggest it's a fraud written after the prophes uh, prophesied events occurred. And, and yet, 
there is considerable evidence to support Daniel's authenticity. I'm not going to get into that, but one would be the Lord Jesus Christ uh, acknowledged Daniel is a prophet of God. And if you believe in Jesus, Jesus who came from heaven to earth to die in our place for our sins, resurrected on the third day, game over, okay? That's God in the flesh saying Daniel's legit. Daniel's the real deal. And I can give you more evidence besides the fact that, uh, I'll just give you one more, and it's part of the Jewish Bible. Daniel was part of the Jewish Bible way before these events uh, took place, and they validated it as from God. And there's much more evidence there, but prophecy gives validity and veracity to the Scriptures. Prophecy is talking about predictions of the future, and that's what we're looking at here. Here's the next point on your notes. God has the authority to set into place the leaders of the nations to serve his purposes. The good, bad, and ugly leaders, okay, all of the above, and that's based on Daniel 4, 17, verse 25, Romans 13, 1 through 4. Had one of our members uh, two weeks ago, him and his wife typically come on Saturday night, um, and they sit right back here, and he shared this quote, uh, this quote from, uh, to me from John Quincy Adams, 6th President of the United States, fought to end the institution of slavery throughout his life, and while never attaining the goal, he never gave up. When asked how he persevered in the face of ever-present hostile opposition, he wisely observed, now listen to this quote, important quote for us, duty is ours, results are God's. Now, I said that because we're coming up to midterms, and, and they're, they're really important, but they're always important. They're always important. And this is what I have found with Christians. I think we need to work like crazy to, and, and we see this in the life of Daniel. Daniel didn't assimilate into that culture, nor did he separate, but he infiltrated and, and, and began to influence it and make much of his God. That's what we need to do as much as we can. We need to vote our Christian values and vote for people that uphold those Christian values. But when it's all said and done, we shouldn't be in despair over the results because that's telling us something about our lives. We should be able to say duty is ours, results are God's. When it's all said and done, duty is ours, and I'm gonna keep working, I'm gonna keep working, duty is ours, results are God's. And, and oftentimes I see too often, Christians are in too much despair for those that know that ultimately God always wins. Does that make sense? I, th I think I see too much despair when we're at the end of elections back in 2016. I saw a lot of despair from people. And, and you guys know the difference between sorrow and despair? It's okay to be sorrowful. Sorrowful is showing that you've lost a good thing and you can kind of work through it and get move on. But despair is telling me that you've lost an ultimate thing. And that ultimate thing has almost become a God thing. And you're trying to get from that thing what you should be getting from God. And so I just say all of that is because God has the authority to set into, into place the leaders of the nations to serve His purposes. We might not always understand that, but we need to work really hard to try to get leaders in there that would represent our values. But when it doesn't work out the way we want, shouldn't be despair, we should be sorrowful, we should grieve it, we should move on, but guess what? Duty is ours, results are God's. I like his attitude. And that's coming from someone who knows that God always wins. 
And God has a plan even in the midst of that. Okay, enough said. Now let's look at this uh, world governing empires that he lays out here. And uh, you guys remember chapter 2 when King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and Daniel interpreted that dream and it was this uh, image uh, of different um, valuable metals that represented all the world governing empires. That's chapter 2. That parallels chapter 7. And so this is 50 years later after he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now. Daniel receives this dream that parallels that dream, but it doesn't describe these world governing empires as this statue of valuable metals, but as vicious animals. And here's the interesting contrast here. Man views human kingdoms as valuable metals, that's chapter two of Daniel, but God sees them as vicious animals that fight and devour each other. That's chapter seven, that's the chapter we're in. So God is identifying nations with animals, which is interesting. We do that today. USA is identified as what animal? Eagle, eagle. What about the Republican Party? Elephant, okay, you guys are a little slow on that one. How about the Democratic Party? That was rude. <laughs> actually, I did look that up, and that's actually what it says, but we'll, we'll use the word donkey instead. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not nice. Uh, okay, let's just close in prayer right there. <laughs> How about Arizona? What is Arizona identified with? What animal? Desert rat. You know that. I'm kidding. That was a joke. Actually, there's a number of animals, uh, but how many were born and raised here? You guys are desert rats. Okay, yeah, that's right. Actually, that's not our, our symbol, desert rat, but that's my symbol for us who have been born and raised here. Okay, that was a joke, and you didn't laugh much on that, so let's keep moving. <laughs> okay, so here's the first fill in the blank, lion. And so he sees this lion, and that parallels with the head of gold, in chapter two, verses 37 through 38. This is the Babylonian Empire. This is modern day Iraq. The next one would be a bear. Chest of silver is the parallel there in chapter two. Medo-Persian Empire. This is modern day Iran. And then you have a leopard, thighs of bronze. That's uh, chapter two. That's the parallel. This is the Greek empire, Grecian empire. Who is the leader here? Anybody? Alexander the Great. Yeah, Alexander the Great. We'll, we're going to get into more detail next week in some of these, more specifics. But you got Alexander the Great. And then you have, it's almost like he didn't know what to describe here. And I think there, that's significant here. Just a beast that parallels with the legs of iron, feet of iron and clay in chapter two of Daniel. This is the Roman Empire's western and eastern divisions that lasted some about 1,200 years. Pretty powerful world governing empire. Now, during this empire, that first century, this is where we have the first coming of Jesus, where he came to bear our judgment. And what this does, Rome foreshadows the Antichrist in the 10 nation confederacy. So as you're reading through this, there's a bit of confusion, and I'm gonna explain something here to you as it relates to prophecy. 
And uh, so it jumps from his first coming to Jesus' second coming where you have the ten-nation confederacy. You've got the Antichrist ten-nation confederacy. And at the end of that, you have the second coming of Jesus. So in his first coming, he came to bear our judgment. Second coming, he, he will come to bring judgment. And uh, what you need to understand about prophecy is for many prophecies, there is both a near fulfillment and a far one in understanding biblical prophecy. And the near fulfillment gives you a picture of the far one. And a lot of times Old Testament prophets talk about both fulfillments as if they are one, but they're separate. Now go to, if you've got your Bibles open, look at verses 7 and 8. You're going to see this in these two verses. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was, it was, let me stop there just for a minute. That's the Roman Empire within that first century. It was brutal. In fact, much of the persecution of early Christians came out of that Roman Empire. I don't, I don't even want to go into the detail of what Nero did to Christians during those days. It was brutal. Crucifixions was common. You just go to the marketplace, out, just outside the marketplace, you're going to see people dying, crucified. That was brutal. But that is nothing compared to where we're headed. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now we move into, so this is all part of the last days. First coming, now we're going to head towards the second coming of Christ, ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. This, my friends, is the Antichrist. He, smarts, he starts off very small, insignificant, like sin does in our life, like cancer that ultimately kills us. He's going to come up out of nowhere, just like ah, kind of insignificant, a little, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Now, some believe that he will rise up within a ten-nation confederacy, powerful confederacy of nations. And he will rise up and he will assassinate three of those leaders. That's what, it's, what many people, as they understand this and interpret this. And behold, in this horn, when the Bible uses the word horn, it speaks of authority and power. It's like the horn of an animal. It's their authority, their power. So it's uh, kind of speaking, meta, uh, kind of giving us an imagery of power. This guy, the horn, in this horn, notice it says, were eyes like the eyes of man. He seemed like an every, everyday kind of guy. And yet behind those eyes are wickedness and evil unlike we've ever faced before on this planet. That's the idea here. We're eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great, great things, boasting. And maybe great things that people would be attracted to him, but also just boasting. And he's going to go into more detail here in a minute, a little bit further into the, in the book. But behind those eyes 
There's a sinister plan that's more wicked and evil than we've ever seen on this planet. That's what he's warning of. That's what he's saying here. This is what he sees. And by the way, Daniel is shaken to the core of his being when he begins to see this. So the Antichrist is the composite beast in which all the former beast kingdoms will culminate and find expression. And when you think of Antichrist, think of this. Antichrist, anything that opposes or replaces Jesus. In fact, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in every age and every culture. 1 John chapter 4 talks about that. Next point on your notes, human history will culminate in a worldwide kingdom under a satanic world ruler, the Antichrist. I believe that he will be filled with the devil himself. I think he will be so demonic and so powerful and so deceiving and so convincing that a lot of people are going to be deceived. Even as he's working today, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well on planet Earth currently. We're going to go into more detail next week. But human history will culminate in a worldwide kingdom under a satanic world ruler, Antichrist, who will defy God and his people and eventually be defeated by God's Son. So, so God knows, so that's, we're talking now futures. We look into the future of the second coming of Christ. So we, we live between his first coming and second coming, and that's what we saw with this uh, fourth world governing empire. And they're kind of somewhat combined together. So God knows what the future holds. So we have the vision of world history. What do you do when you're rattled by looking at world history? Well. We got to know that, and he holds the future. This is verses 9 through 14. This is a vision of heaven. I need to have a vision of heaven. While the beasts are fighting on earth, God is holding court in heaven, and everything is under his control. The reason the throne room is set forth first, right after he gets this glimpse, before he unpacks it and gets the interpretation of it, the reason why the uh, throne room is set forth first is so that we are not fearful of the Antichrist and where world history is headed. So, when the course of world history depresses you, look at the events from heaven's point of view. You need to spend some time in the throne room with God. And as believers in Christ, we have access into the very throne room of God. It's blood-bought. And we have access into his throne room 24-7. Daniel gets a chance to look into the throne room of God. Now, Daniel in the throne room of God gets a glimpse of three things. The Father's majesty, that's verses 9 through 10. The defeat of the Antichrist, that's verses 11 and 12. And the exaltation of Jesus as king over all the earth. And each of those will do something to us. If we get a glimpse of each of these, this will, this will transform our lives as we are in the throne room of God. Let me, read, um, let me read this text that describes the Father's majesty. This is breathtaking, actually. And the description of God should not be taken literally here in verses 9 and 10 because God doesn't have a body, wear clothes, or grow white hair. Uh, these descriptions are symbolic of his nature and character. So look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, 
And the ancient of days took a seat. I love that. That's our Father God. Ancient of days. The Father's eternal, loving, wise plan has no rivals. He's sitting on his throne, which means he's secure. Nothing can threat his power, his authority, his sovereignty. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. I mean, he is perfectly righteous and holy and just in all that he does. His throne was, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Basically, just saying his judgment, we're, we're looking at his fire as, as judgment here. Judgment, his judgment is punitive to his enemies. You're going to see that in just a few moments. But it's purifying to his friends. That would be us. And thousand, thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Oh my goodness, that's millions and millions and millions of people. His majesty, glory, and beauty are out of this world. You have never seen anything like this before. Nothing in creation, it's, everything in creation that shows you majesty, glory, beauty is a dim glimpse of the God in heaven, Father God, on his throne. The court set in judgment and the books were open. What books? The books that, that have detailed accounts of every person's life. Except believers' sins are covered by the blood of Christ in those books. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Those sins that we have confessed and repented of, boom. Never be held against us. Do you hear that? Praise God. Praise that just right there. That in itself, he's got books on me, but guess what? A lot of that's been blotted out. A lot of that's been blotted out. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. He's just saying he's the judge of the universe, and nobody gets away with anything. This is what it should do for us. It should fortify our faith when we spend time in the throne room of God. Fortify our faith, equipping you to overcome temptation. Nothing will fortify your faith when you begin to understand the character of God and get close to Him and spend time in the throne room of God. It's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. A lot of times we're trying to stir up more faith. Well, this is how you stir up more faith. Get to know Him. Spend time with Him. Get to know His character. Nothing will fortify your faith like getting to know the object of your faith. Faith is more than just agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all appetites. I don't know how you can get to know him and not fall in love with him and be captivated by him. And that's what helps you to overcome temptations. Because there is, there is, such, uh, there is such satisfaction and completeness that's found in him that you can't find any place else on the planet It's the superior pleasure of knowing him and experiencing him that overcomes the inferior pleasure of sin. It will fortify your faith, equipping you to overcome temptation. 
And so as you get to know him, man, it will increase your appetite for him. And you're going to want him more than you're going to want anything else in this world. That's just, that's a fact. That's one thing that it does, the, ma- the Father's majesty. And then you got the next, verses 11 through 12, the defeat of the Antichrist. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is pretty harsh. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, that's the Antichrist, was speaking. Whoa, he's pretty impressive. Wow, great words, a lot of boasting. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Bam! Just like that. And notice how it refers to him, its body. It's not even human here. I mean, this is, it's just like its body destroyed and given over to burned with fire. He's almost like telling Daniel, Daniel, you don't need to be intimidated by the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist or any of that. The Father just takes him down, and we're going to find out why and how he's able to take him down here in a minute. But it says, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Here's what this will do when you begin to understand this. This will liberate your life, equipping you to endure persecution and even suffering. That's your next couple fill in the blanks. So to liberate your life, which it brings freedom to your life. Let me make that practical here just for a moment so you understand what I'm talking about here. The Antichrist is the epitome of sin and suffering. The Bible says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he's all about. I think that in world history, things are going to continue to unravel And we've seen highs and lows of this, but as we head closer to the end, it's going to get so wicked and so evil and so sinful, it will be overwhelming to us. And at the same time, God will shine his light upon his people, and we will shine brighter than ever before. I believe God will bring a revival unlike we've ever seen in the history of the world. I'm convinced of that. So as the world's getting darker, we're going to shine brighter as we walk with him. And we don't need to be intimidated by sin and suffering. Because whatever the human capacity there is for sin and suffering, God through the gospel of Jesus Christ has greater capacity for healing, health, and wholeness. See, that's what we're in the business of, helping people to come out of a life of sin and suffering to find healing, health, and wholeness through Christ Jesus. No sin or suffering is a match for God's redeeming and restoring grace. That's the message of him destroying the Antichrist here. That's applicable today in our lives. So the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest In the midst of the darkness, when it gets dark and difficult and depressing and it's overwhelming, Jesus said, I have come to invade that darkness and difficulty and depressing environment, and and I bring fullness of life in the midst of that. That is amazing. So I love the gospel. I love all that Jesus is, and that takes us to the exaltation of Jesus as king over the earth. That's verses 13 through 14. So you can kind of see the flow here. How does the Father bring judgment and salvation for us it's through his son Jesus verses 13 through 14 look what it says I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man you might want to underline that in the Bible because this is one phrase that Jesus uses 
In the gospel accounts, some 80 times, about 88 times, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. In essence, what he tells his disciples, you want to know who I am? Read, a, read about me in the book of Daniel chapter 7. I'm right there. This is me. I've come to rescue and redeem and reconcile you back to the Father. A Son of Man. Notice he's coming in the clouds. That's what his second coming, coming in the clouds. And he came to the Ancient of Days. There's the Father and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, no, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here's your next couple fill in the blanks. If you understand that, you begin to live in the reality of it. It will satisfy your soul, equipping you to engage in partnership with God and His plans. I'm telling you, nothing will satisfy you like knowing Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me shall never go hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never go thirsty. Man, there is a satisfaction in Him. He will fill up your life. He will satisfy your soul. So when you spend time, so I don't want to move too quickly beyond this. When I'm rattled by life, when I'm upset, when I'm stressed out, when I'm angry, when I don't know which way to go, I spend time in the throne room of God. That's what Daniel's doing right here. And this is what I've found, that it fortifies my faith. It liberates my life. and satisfies my soul like nothing else. This is what he's experiencing here. And when that happens, I can endure, I can overcome temptation, I can endure persecution and suffering and I can engage in partnership with God and His plans for my life. And I can begin to live out. We have a 5G process of full devotion to Christ here, which means I'm going to walk with Him. I'm going to live His Word. I'm going to contribute to His work. I'm going to make an impact in this world all for His glory. That's the 5G process, genuine, growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. Because I'm so satisfied in Him, man, I, I just want to pass that on to anybody and everybody. Okay, so God knows what the future holds. We saw the vision of world history. And there's so much more we could get into just with that. We'll study a little bit more next week. So that's verses 1 through 8. And he holds the future, the vision of heaven. That's verses 9 through 14. Therefore, how should we live in light of this? This is verses 15 through 28. This is a vision of saints on earth. Saints on earth. And he uses this word saints... We're saints, not because of our record and our performance, because of Jesus' record and his performance. So we're sanctified, we're made right in God's eyes through Christ's works, not our works. So these saints, verse 18, 21, 22, 25, and 27, are believers during the end times. Are we living in the end times? Yeah, actually we are. I don't know if we're in the end times of the Antichrist. He might be alive right now on planet Earth. I have no idea. We are living in the end times, and so these saints are the believers during the end times just before the Lord returns to set up his kingdom. But what Daniel has to say about them has spiritual application to believers today. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then I desired, so he's asking for interpretation now. 
and he gets interpretation of all four of these beasts, but then he wants to dive a little deeper into this fourth beast, and he says, then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and, and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn, Antichrist, that came up, and before which three of them fell, he assassinates them, somehow they die, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, here's the key verse, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. If you thought Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, and his ovens and gas chambers were overwhelming, they are nothing. They would be naive schoolboys compared to the Antichrist and what he's going to bring on this planet. And he is going to persecute the church unlike the church has ever been persecuted before. This is what it's saying. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. You go to many third world countries, a lot of this stuff's already happening. We're somewhat sheltered, but we're headed in that direction. Here's your next fill in the blank. Life is a war. Life is a war. So what's the battle? Where's the battleground? It's the hearts and lives of every human being. And here's what he's doing. Tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. So he blinds our eyes to see how desirable and satisfying Jesus is. So what is he doing to believers? If that's what he's doing to unbelievers, what is he doing to believers? 2 Corinthians 11, 3. Paul says that I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The word sincere means authentic, that somehow you'd kind of go into kind of a robotic kind of check the church box, go through the motions, not when you, when you pray, you're just saying your prayers, you're not really engaging with God, so that would be sincere. And pure means to be undivided. In other words, you're not aware of those things that are competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. What are those things in your life that are working hard, the antichrist in your life that are working hard to draw your heart away from Christ? And this is what Paul says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Anything that does is an antichrist. Taking the place of Christ as a substitute for Christ or trying to draw your heart away from Christ. Life is a war. And if Satan can't get you to doubt God's existence, he'll get you to doubt his goodness, and he'll do it in two ways. He'll deceive you with the pleasures of life, thinking that somehow you're going to find more pleasure in this world than what you will in the Creator and in God. Or he'll create disillusionment when you go through suffering, like God's holding out on you, he's not involved in your life in any way, you feel all alone, he's going to isolate you. So you're going to be deceived by the pleasures 
of sin are disillusioned by the pain of suffering. And both of that is doubting the goodness of God. Listen, He always has your best interest at heart, and no one can fortify your faith, liberate your life, satisfy your soul like He can. That's a fact. And that's what we're warring against. By the way, just a quick, uh, I'm, almost, I'm, I'm, I'm almost finished up here, but uh, pop quiz time of what we learned last week. I think your best defense is what we learned last week. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? How did he endure the lion's den? Because he had character, he had godly character. How did he develop that godly character? Three things that develop godly character. Remember, spiritual disciplines, work of the Holy Spirit, and suffering. And as you go through suffering, let it drive you deeper into the love of God and to spiritual disciplines and allow the Holy Spirit to transform your life. Okay, let me continue reading here. Verse uh, 23 and 24. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample on it and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them and he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings and he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given in to his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. Talking about the saints under horrible persecution, many martyred for their faith under his leadership. I'm not going to get into the eschatological perspectives there. There's multiple perspectives, but I think we can apply this to our lives today. So life is a war. Here's the next one. There are times it will seem we are losing Maybe you're here this morning and you're taking a beating and you feel like, I am losing, where is God? You're here by divine design here this morning to hear this message, to, to understand, no, you're not losing. He's still in control. He's still working. I mean, when you look at the life of Jesus, those looking at Jesus as he was dying on the cross had no idea that they were looking at the greatest act of salvation in history. I mean, the disciples thought it was over. We spent three and a half years with this guy. Now he's hanging on the cross. It's done. We thought he was the Messiah. Wait for three days. <laughs> Resurrection. See, the cross is evidence that in the hands of the Redeemer, moments of apparent defeat become wonderful moments of grace and victory. That's the point. Here's the next, next point in your notes. But in the end, but in the end, we will receive a kingdom and reign with Christ forever and ever and ever. Verse 18, 22, and 27. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. You have basically the same thing in verse 22 and then verse 27. Now, let me give you a quick illustration and we're done. Your favorite sports team has a big game coming up and if they lose, their season is over. And so... The problem with that is that you have an appointment at the time when that game is on. And you weren't looking ahead and you scheduled the appointment and you can't get out of the appointment because you desperately wanted to watch the game, so what do you do? You record the game. That's what you do on DVR or whatever 
whatever mechanism that you use. So you record the game, but before you get home and watch the game, your friend tells you the final score that your team wins. And so you choke him out <laughs> because it ruined you know, all of your sense of expectancy, and, uh, and, and, but actually you're kind of happy because you, you, you're very happy for your team. And so you're, you're gonna watch the game. It's only a game, by the way, okay? So it's not that big of a deal. And maybe you wanted a little suspense, a little anxiety, and it's kind of fun, especially to see the ending and your team won. But you're gonna watch the game completely different. You don't watch it with the same level of stress and anxiety, and you can actually enjoy the game because you know, even in the highs and lows of the game, even when you think your team is gonna lose, you know they're gonna win. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33. You're gonna feel like you're gonna lose, guys. He didn't say it quite like that, but this is how he said it. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's saying, you're gonna feel like you're losing, but guess what? We together are going to win. That's what he's saying. So when it comes to the future of your life or this country, you know, the direction that we're going as a country, the word that should characterize your life is not stressful, but restful. And if you're stressful, you need to spend some time in the throne room of God. Spend some time in the throne room of God so that it will fortify your faith, liberate your life, satisfy your soul. In case you forgot, God always, always wins. God always wins. Praise God. Praise God. Next weekend, I was gonna call the, I had it, I think it's in the bulletin, God Rules History. I'm gonna change the title, okay, because we, we're talking about that. We're gonna talk about how God continues to rule history through these prophecies, but I'm gonna call it the Spirit of the Antichrist, Daniel chapter eight, you can read ahead. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders and leaders. If you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. I've got the oil up here. God's doing some really amazing things here at Desert Breeze. So uh, allow us to anoint you with oil. We will pray for you. If you've got any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, for a child of God, we don't have to fear anyone or anything as we walk in humble confidence every day because our Father in heaven knows what the future holds and holds the future for our good in his glory. And as we learn to spend more and more time in your throne room, fortify our faith, equipping us to overcome temptation, liberate our lives, equipping us to endure persecution and suffering, and satisfy our souls, equipping us to engage with you in your plans. We pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.